to Revelation chapter 8. In chapters 5 and 6, we looked ahead in time through the eyes of John to that day when Christ, the only one who is worthy because he is the lamb that was slain, takes the seven-sealed title deed to the earth and he begins to break the seals. And we get to see the results of that as he opens the first six seals in chapter 6. And this morning we will see what will happen when he opens this final seal. And what we're going to find is that contained within this seventh seal are all the subsequent developments leading to the second coming of Christ, including the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. And so the seven trumpet judgments and the seven bowl judgments are not separate judgments that follow the seven seals. They are under this final seal. They are part of this final seal. So the seventh seal takes us all the way through the events of Revelation chapter 19. And when this seal is done, we will find Christ coming out of heaven, claiming the earth, reversing the curse, setting up his kingdom, and reigning as king of kings and lord of lords. And so when, the, when this seal is completed, we see Christ coming and laying claim to the title deed to the earth, or to the earth itself. Now, last week we saw between the sixth and seventh seal kind of a refreshing interlude. Revelation chapter 7 describes for us the great revival during the great tribulation. And we saw there that the evangelists during the seven-year period are going to be 144,000 Israelites. And those who are going to be saved during this period are an innumerable multitude from all nations. Now, there are a couple questions that arise out of Revelation chapter 7 that I didn't take the time to answer last week, and I just want to address those. Uh, first of all, some people approach Revelation chapter 7 and they say, well, how can these 144,000 servants described in Revelation chapter 7 verses 4 to 8 be literal Israelites when they don't know what tribes they're from? If you ask an Israelite today which tribe he's from, he has no way to verify that. And so some people ask, well, how could this be Israelites when they don't know? And he's talking here about tribes and 12,000 from this tribe and 12,000 from that tribe. Well, it's true that the records of the genealogies were destroyed in 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was destroyed. And it's true that a Jewish person today can't really verify which tribe he's from. But that's not really a problem here because if you look in the passage, you'll find that the one who's doing the verifying is God. And so it's God's records that matter here. God is sovereignly choosing these people. And God knows who's who. And God will select and seal 12,000 Israelites from every tribe. And so there's no problem, really, with that question. A second question, and maybe a more pertinent question that arises is, how can people get saved in the tribulation period when the Holy Spirit is removed? How are people going to be saved during that time if the Holy Spirit is taken out of the world? And that question arises out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7. And I'd like you to just look at that verse with me for a moment. In fact, this is a chapter that uh, we really need to...
study sometime, but I don't have time to go into it in depth right now. It tells us that the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness is going to be active in the world long before he will be manifest. He will be here. He will be active long before he's revealed. And the thing that keeps him from being revealed in all his ungodliness is the one whom Paul calls the restrainer. And many identify this as the Holy Spirit because who alone can restrain Satan and his activities but the Holy Spirit of God? And when the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, then that lawless one will be revealed. Notice verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, already active. Only he who now restrains, that's the Holy Spirit, will do so until he is taken out of the way. That's the rapture of the church. And then, verse 8 says, then that lawless one will be revealed. So, if the Holy Spirit is taken out of this world, how will people get saved during the tribulation? That's a good question. The answer is that the Holy Spirit is going to be taken out of the world in the same sense that he came. And how did the Holy Spirit come into the world? He came on the day of Pentecost, and he came to indwell the church. He came to reside in the church. And he is going to go out of this world with the church in the same way that he came. When he goes out of the world, he will still be in the world because he's omnipresent. And he will still be active in the world in the same way that he was before Pentecost. He will simply change his primary residence but he will still be active in the world in the same way that he was active in the Old Testament. He didn't reside in the world in the Old Testament, but he was active in people's lives. He filled people in the Old Testament, and you read all about his activities in the Old Testament, but he didn't indwell people the way he does in the church age. A good example of that is maybe Nicodemus. You read in John chapter 3, and Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born of the Spirit. Well, that was before the day of Pentecost. That was before the Spirit actually came, but he said you must be born of the Spirit. And so the Spirit was actively involved in the Old Testament in people's lives, but he didn't come in the sense of making his residence in the lives of the, of the people of the church as he does in the church age. So just as men were saved through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, they will be saved in the tribulation period. Let me suggest one more question that comes out of Revelation chapter 7, and that is people ask the question, well, if... If people are going to get saved during the tribulation, then won't all those people who have heard the gospel and now reject Christ believe when they see all the Christians gone? I mean, all those people who have heard the gospel and rejected Christ, when the rapture of the church takes place, won't they all say, uh-oh, we blew it. We better believe. Now, aren't they going to do that? That, that's a question that arises. In other words, the question, it's kind of a selfish question because it says, aren't they going to get a second chance? And many times preachers ask, can I stand here at the pulpit and say, if you reject Christ and Jesus Christ comes back today, you don't have a second chance. Is that a legitimate statement to make? And so the, the question really is, maybe put bluntly, can a person say, uh, I'll just wait for the rapture and when I see it, then I'll believe. Well, there are a couple reasons my, why my answer to that question is no. 
And let me just suggest those two reasons to you. Number one is the very nature of faith. And faith, a person who rejects the revelation of God in the Word of God is not going to accept circumstances. That's just the very nature of faith. Faith responds to the revelation of God. That's the way faith is. And a person who rejects Christ now when presented with the gospel, which, which the Word of God calls the power of God, is not going to respond to some miraculous circumstances that he happens to see. Because if he can rationalize away the truth of God revealed in the Word of God, then he will be able to rationalize away circumstances. And I think that's evidence to us in, in Revelation chapter 6 at the end where it, where it tells us there of the sixth seal. And it talks about this earthquake and all this shaking and the stars falling out of the sky and so forth. And it says, Men will hide themselves in caves in the mountains and they will say, verse 16, to the mountains, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Great theology. They understand it all. Hide us from the one who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. But they're hiding from him. And their only prayer is directed to the mountains. I think it's illustrated to us in Luke chapter 16. There's a verse worth marking. The very last verse in Luke 16. It's the, it's the place where Jesus tells a story about the rich man and Lazarus, which it doesn't call a parable. It calls a, a, a certain man. And so I take it to be a true story. Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus. And you remember, Lazarus sat at the rich man's table and ate the crumbs off his table. They both died. Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. The rich man went to Hades. He was in torment there. While he's in torment there, he talks to Abraham and he says, Abraham, let Lazarus dip his finger in some water and just put it on my tongue to give me just a little bit of relief. And Abraham says there's a great chasm in between and he can't do that. And then after first thinking of his own needs, then this man says, well, I'm concerned about my brothers. I have five brothers. Let Lazarus go back and warn my brothers because I don't want them to come to this place. And Abraham says this, the last verse in Luke chapter 16, he says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Great statement. If they won't believe the revelation of God, then they're not going to believe if they see somebody rise from the dead and come back and tell them what it's like. Because faith will respond to the, to the gospel, which is the power of God. And if, it reject, if I'm able to reject the gospel, the power of God, when I fully understand it, then I'm not going to believe when I see some circumstances. And I'm not going to believe when I see some miracles. I wouldn't even believe if somebody came back from the dead and told me about the situation. And so the, the very nature of faith tells me that people will rationalize away the things that they see in the book of Revelation. A hardened heart will stay hardened. There's a second reason why I don't believe that people who have a full understanding of the gospel and who reject Christ will respond during the tribulation, and that is the deluding influence. Let me just show you. Turn back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 again. And again, this is an important chapter. <clears throat> but look at verse 8.
He says, and then that lawless one will be revealed, the Antichrist, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. His end is going to come when Christ returns. Verse 9, that is, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. He's going to be a deceiver, this Antichrist. He's going to deceive those who perish. And notice the end of verse 10. Those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Now, I would like you to read through that passage and notice the future tense and the past tense. He says this Antichrist is going to come. He is going to uh, deceive those who are on the earth. And the ones he is going to deceive is those who did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Past tense. And then verse 11, and for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence. Who's them? The ones who did not believe. God will send on them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. And that which is false is described back in verse 3 and 4 of the same chapter. This Antichrist is going to come and he's going to set himself up in the temple as God and he's going to ask men to worship him and these same ones are going to fall for that which is false and they're going to worship the Antichrist. And then verse 12 says, In order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. What am I saying? I'm saying that when the Antichrist comes, the ones that he's going to deceive the most are going to be those who refuse to accept Christ in this period of grace. And not only that, but it tells us that God is going to intervene and God is going to send a deluding influence on those who have rejected him during this period of time. And so God is going to take the blinders off Israel in the tribulation and he's going to put them on those who have understood the gospel and yet have rejected Jesus Christ in this age. And so if you're rejecting the Lord today thinking that you'll get a second opportunity during the tribulation, I've got news for you. Because I feel very comfortable in saying that a person who rejects Christ in this day and age will reject him then. And the ones who will be saved during the tribulation period, this great multitude talked about, is going to be those who have not heard clearly or understood fully the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay. Now let's move on to chapter 8. In chapter 8, we're going to look at the seventh seal. And with the opening of this seventh seal, we're going to see three responses. We're going to see silence in heaven in verses 1 and 2, the supplication of the saints, supplication means prayer, verses 3 to 5, and the sounding of the trumpets, verses 6 to 13. First of all, we see silence in heaven, verses 1 and 2. Notice verse 1. And when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, some people use this verse to support the concept that there will be no women in heaven. I personally don't hold to that view. But when Christ breaks this seventh seal, there is silence in heaven. And that tells me something about heaven. It tells me that silence is unusual 
in heaven. It tells me that heaven is a place filled with sound. And we've seen that as we've gone through this book of Revelation. If you go back to chapter 4 and verse 5, we were introduced there to the throne of God. And it says, From the throne of God proceed flashing of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And then that same chapter down in verse 10, it talks about the four living creatures and the 24 elders. And it says, They are saying, Worthy art thou. Chapter 5, verse 9, it tells us these same ones are singing a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book. So they're singing in heaven. In uh, verse 12 of chapter 5, it says, The angels join in, and they say with a loud voice, Worthy is a lamb that was slain. Chapter 6 describes the first six seals, and when the first one is opened, the first thing we hear is a voice like thunder. Second one is opened, a voice like thunder. The third one is opened, a voice like thunder. The fourth one is opened, a voice like thunder. The fifth one is opened, and we hear the prayers of martyrs as they cry out with a loud voice. The sixth one is open, and we have this shattering, trembling earthquake, and the sky is rolled up like a scroll. Chapter 7, verse 10, we see this great multitude saved out of the tribulation, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so heaven is filled with thundering noises and loud shouts and songs of praise and communication and worship and activity. But when Christ opens the seventh seal, there is silence. Now why is there silence? Well, I think it's the silence of expectancy. It's the silence of anticipation because this is the last seal. The final drama of man's day is here. It's all coming to a head and it's so startling that it stills the throngs of heaven. There's silence. You say, well, why is there silence for a half hour? Well, I really don't know that there's anything significant about that period of time, a half hour. In fact, he says it's about a half an hour. I think the significant thing is that John noticed the time. You know, if you, if you have silence in the midst of some pleasant endeavor, you rarely notice it. But if you have silence in a time of judgment... It brings sort of a nerve-shattering tension to the situation. It's like when your dad used to say, go to your room and I'll be right in there, and then he didn't come right in. You know, it was like the tension would mount about what was going to come next. Well, this is the final seal, and he opens it, and all of heaven is looking on to see what's going to happen next, and there's silence everywhere. And John said it was so noticeable because it was about a half hour of just silence. And as all heaven stands in this captivated suspense, we see activity beginning in verse 2. And he says, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Out of this seventh seal come seven trumpets. And trumpets are used throughout the history of Israel to do various things. They were used to declare war, to assemble the people to proclaim great events, to announce the arrival of a king. To a, to, they were associated with the manifestation of the power and majesty of God on Mount Sinai when he gave the law. Trumpets, you'll find them throughout the Old Testament. Here they are associated with the announcement of judgment. 
And these seven trumpets which are going to be used to announce judgment are given to seven angels. And once again, we see judgment is committed to angels. But if you look carefully at verse 2, you'll see that these don't seem to be just any run-of-the-mill angels. They are called the seven angels who stand before God. They seem to have been there before the seal was opened. This seems to be their place is standing before the throne. Seven angels, these seven angels. Now, I won't get dogmatic about this, but you want to know what one of their names was? Listen to this verse. Luke 1:19. An angel came to Zacharias, John the Baptist's dad, and said this to him. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Now, we can't get dogmatic on that, but it seems that there are certain angels, and you'll find Gabriel's responsibility. He's the one who went to Daniel in the book of Daniel. He's the one who goes with this message to Zacharias. It's as if they stand in the presence of God and they wait for anything God desires, and there they go. They're the ones who respond to God. They're standing and they're gazing at God. Anything that he desires them to do, they respond to. And so here are these seven angels, and they are given seven trumpets, trumpets of judgment. And so the first response to the seventh seal is silence, anticipating the judgment that's about to be announced by these seven angels. The second response is the supplication of the saints, and that's in verses 3 to 5. Notice verse 3, and notice carefully. And another, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Now, we have reference here to things that we know from the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23, we're told that the tabernacle was a copy of the things in heaven. And so here we are in heaven, and we're seeing things that we rem remember from the tabernacle. And if you'll remember in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, when a worshiper approached the tabernacle, the very first thing that he came to was the brazen altar. And that was a big, huge altar. It's kind of like a big barbecue grill. And it had horns on it where they would tie the sacrifices there. And they would be sacrificed. And there were coals underneath to, to burn up the, the, the uh, sacrifice. And so that's where the atonement was made for sin, at the brazen altar. The next thing that they would come to was the laver. It looked kind of like a bird bath. And they would wash themselves of all the blood involved in the sacrifices. And then they would come to a veil, and that would be the holy place. And they would enter that veil, and they would see a lampstand there. And they would see a table with showbread. And then right in front of a second veil, they would see the altar of incense. And then inside that veil was the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holy Places. On, on top was the mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled every year on the Day of Atonement. And so that's the picture of the tabernacle. And what you have here, in fact, in the tabernacle, you'll, you'll find that uh, this altar of incense is set before the veil. It didn't have any fire of its own, but they were to go and they were to take coals off the brazen altar and put them on this altar of incense, and then they would add incense to that, and the smoke would go up, and it would actually go inside the Holy of Holy Places and all around the mercy seat. 
But they had to take the fire off the brazen altar to burn the incense that went into the holy place, or the holy of holy places. That's important. In fact, you'll read in Leviticus chapter 10 about Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. And it says, they put fire on the altar of incense, but they burned strange fire before the Lord. In other words, they didn't get the fire off the brazen altar. They just made a fire. I don't know if they had a big lighter or what they had, but they just made their own little fire and put it there and put the incense on and it burned and they walked away and the Bible tells us that fire came out of the holy of holy places and consumed them because they didn't get the coals off the brazen altar. You say, what's the big deal? Well, the interesting thing is we find out here in the book of Revelation some of the significance of that because it tells us back in chapter 5 and verse 8 that the incense is symbolic of prayer. And here it tells us that prayer is what's going on this altar of incense. And what is it that has to fuel our, our prayers? It has to be the coals off the brazen altar. These coals, the, the sacrifice was put on top and burned up and as it was the juices and the blood out of that animal would fall down on the coals and those were the coals that had to be taken and put on that altar of incense and mixed with the incense to go before God. And so the sacrifice for sin had to be paid first before the incense could go up as a sweet-smelling aroma to God. What's the message? My sins have to be paid for first before I can have access to God in prayer. And it's, it's, it's the sacrifice of Christ that allows my prayers to go up before God. It's a great picture that we have presented for us here. You know, back in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the Lord exalted and lifted up. And you remember what he said back there? He said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And while he's standing there, he's seeing the Lord exalted, he's realizing how sinful he is. It tells us that a seraphim went and took a coal off the altar and touched his lips, and he was forgiven. The coal off the altar that had been sat representing the judgment of God, that had been satisfied by the sacrifice, touched his lips, and he was forgiven. Beautiful picture. You know, uh, some people say that this angel, let me just give you a tangent here. Some people say that these, this angel is Christ. Uh, in fact, many commentators say that. And the reason they say that is that uh, this, what he's doing here seems to be sort of the work of a high priest. And since Christ is our high priest, this must be Christ. And, and since there's only one mediator between God and man, and, and uh, this, this angel is involved in, uh, in our prayers, that... This must be Christ. And uh, if you remember in the Old Testament, Christ appeared on several occasions as the angel of the Lord, the angel of Jehovah. And so it's not out of the question for him to be called the angel of the Lord. And so many people believe this is Christ. Um, I don't. And uh, I'll give you that reason. Uh, essentially, it's this. I, I don't see that he's really acting as the high priest here. Uh, because he's not doing any atonement or propitiation. He's not going into the, inside the veil and, and got any blood or anything. It's not even mentioned. He's just like the seraphim in Isaiah 6 who takes the coal off, off the brazen altar. This angel is acting as a minister for God. 
Uh, and then he's not really mediating between God and man. It's not a, the idea of us praying to this angel and this angel taking it to God. That's not even the issue. In fact, back in chapter 5 and verse 8 of Revelation, it talks about the 24 elders and it says they have bowls which are full of the prayers of the saints. And so it's not unusual for somebody in heaven to have some prayers. And, and uh, some even suggest that these are the prayers that, that haven't been answered yet. And they store them and hold them. And when it's time to answer them, they bring them out and put them on this, this altar of incense and they go up before God and they are answered and they are used in worship to God. That's an exciting thought. Those prayers that you haven't had answered, God is waiting to answer. And these are some that he's waiting to answer on this occasion. And then the, the real reason is in verse 3 it says, and another angel came. Now I have problems with that. You know, here comes Christ. We haven't seen him yet in the book of Revelation. This is the revelation of Christ. And they say, another angel showed up. I have problems thinking this is the entrance of Christ in the book of Revelation. We've already seen him as the lamb. Uh, the, another problem I have is that you will find Christ introduced as the angel of Jehovah in the Old Testament. Once he came in the incarnation and became a man, you never saw him again as the angel of Jehovah. He never came as the angel of the Lord. He is the lamb. He is a man now in a body. And so we don't see him coming in those, in those times when he comes as the angel of the Lord. And so I would suggest that this is an angel who is uh, ministering here as angels do. Uh, you say, well, what are these prayers? Back in chapter 6 and verse 9. It says, when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar, this brazen altar, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained, these martyrs. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, and here's their prayer, how long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What's the prayer? God, how much longer do we have to wait? until you pour out your judgment on this rebellious, wicked world. And now it's time for that prayer to be answered. And so those prayers are taken and they're put, put on the altar of incense and they go up before God. And here we see the answer to those prayers in verse 5. It says, And the angel took the censer, the same censer, and he filled it with the fire of the altar and he threw it to the earth and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. He takes these coals and he, and he fuels this incense and these prayers before God. Then he takes that same censer back to the altar, the brazen altar, and he takes some coals off of there and it says he throws them down to the earth. This is the answer to the prayers. And as he does, there are peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Now this tells me that the same coals, these coals of judgment that have been satisfied have to be appropriated. They have to be applied. The, the blood has, has been shed. These coals of judgment have been satisfied, but they have to be appropriated. Unless these coals are taken and they touch my lips for forgiveness, unless they are used to give me access to the Father, then I will face this same judgment poured out upon me. And so this judgment that was satisfied by the sacrifice of Christ when it's not appropriated 
the lives of people will be poured out upon them in judgment. And so he takes these coals and he casts them down upon a world that has rejected Christ. Brings us to the third response. And that's the sounding of the trumpets in verses 6 to 13. Verse 6, And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. Seven angels, they're poised now to sound the trumpets announcing judgment. You know what this reminds me of? You remember back in the Old Testament to the time when Jericho was destroyed? And on that occasion, Jericho was about to be destroyed and there were seven blasts on seven trumpets by seven priests on the seventh day. And here you have seven blasts on seven trumpets by seven angels on Israel's 70th seven. And so there's a real parallel there. And it's to announce the judgment of Jericho in the Old Testament. Here it is to announce the judgment on this wicked world. And he mentions the first four trumpets in the rest of chapter 8, and we'll just go through them quickly because they're pretty self-explanatory. First trumpet, verse 7. And the first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. Kind of sounds like what came right out of the censer, doesn't it? Kind of sounds like what came right off the altar. Hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. You say, is this literal? I mean, is this literally going to happen? Well, I believe it is. You know, God rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. On the land of Egypt, we have a similar plague. The seventh plague was hail mixed with fire that came down on Egypt. And I can't imagine that, that God would do anything less during this tribulation period than he's already done in the Old Testament period. And here we find that a third of the earth is burned up, a third of the trees, and a third of the grass. A third of all the vegetation on the earth is destroyed. Earlier in the second seal, we saw a famine, or the third seal, we saw a famine. Everything's dry. Now we have this fire coming down. It consumes a third of the vegetation. That's going to have a great impact on this world. Second trumpet, verses 8 and 9, and the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now John sees this thing that he can only describe as it's like a great mountain and it's burning with fire. Now what it is, I don't know. Whether it's a meteorite or a meteor or whatever you call them when they hit the earth. Uh, anyway, it falls into the sea and he says the result is that a third of the sea is turned to blood and a third of the creatures in the sea and a third of the ships are destroyed. Uh, Dad won't be taking vacations to Myrtle Beach when this happens. You're going to have blood on the beaches and dead fish everywhere. It's going to be the worst place for tourism to go to the beaches because he says the sea is going to be turned to blood. And again, that parallels the first plague in Egypt. Then we see the third trumpet, verses 10 and 11. And the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made 
bitter. Now, a great star falls from heaven. That's not unusual because in the sixth seal, we saw stars falling to the earth. This star has a name. That's not unusual either because Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God put the stars in place. Psalm 147 says God knows how many there are. And Job 9 says God calls each one by name. And this one is called Wormwood. And Wormwood is the name of a bitter, poisonous herb. And that's really the result that this falling star has because its effect is upon the fresh water. And he says a third of the rivers and springs will become polluted, bitter poison, in fact, and many men will die. And I can't help but contrast that with the end of chapter 7 and verse 17 where we see the lamb guiding his own to the springs of the water of life. He guides his own to the springs of the water of life and the springs and the rivers on the earth are going to be polluted. And then the fourth trumpet, verse 12. And the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were smitten so that a third of them might be darkened and the day might not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. A third of the heavens are darkened. A third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars. Similar to the ninth plague in Egypt where they had darkness. And uh, I can't help but think that God is simply saying, you know, in John 3 it says men love the darkness. God is saying, you like darkness? I'll give you darkness. And I'll just put the lights out one by one. And you can imagine that that's going to cause some severe disorientation because people are going to be saying, you know what day it is? You know what time it is? Because they're going to have essentially uh, eight-hour days and 16-hour nights. And it's going to be an interesting situation on the earth. And if you notice, these first four trumpets are poured out on nature. All of man's natural resources are going to be affected. The earth, the trees, the grass, the sea, the rivers, the sun, the moon, the stars. You say, well, why would God send the curse on those things? Well, they're under the curse of sin. And that's one of the reasons. The other reason is he wants to get man's attention because, you see, it's the heavens that declare the glory of God. It's creation that declares God's glory, and man has rejected that. And man has taken for granted all of these things that God has given to him. And now God says, well, I'll just take a third of them off the board, and maybe I'll get your attention. You know, on that day, earth first won't be a movement. It'll be mandatory because man will be struggling to salvage what's left of this earth. You say, well, what could be worse than that? Verse 13, And I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. And as terrible as the first four trumpets seem, the last three will be worse because the first four are against nature. The last three are going to be against mankind. And we're going to see specifically these, these uh, judgments are going to be poured out on man. And they are called woes because they are even more intense. And we will look at the fifth angel sounding next week. Let me just remind you of something as we close. And that is Revelation 
is not a book written to entertain. And it's not a book written to challenge our intellects. And it's not, not a book written for us to get into some fanciful debates about speculative things. It's written to motivate and purify us. Peter said in 2 Peter 3.11, Since all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Since we know that these things are going to happen, it ought to affect us today. And we ought to be people who, because we believe this is going to happen, live different kind of lives. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And so it ought to have an effect on my life personally. It ought to motivate me to share the gospel with other people because I know that these things are going to be destroyed and I understand the judgment of God. Let's close. Father, I thank you for your word today. And Father, it's a solemn picture as we see your judgment poured out. But we're thankful that we see that that judgment comes from a place, the brazen altar, where the sacrifice for sin has already been paid. And Lord, I thank you that you've given us the open eyes to see the salvation we have in the Lord Jesus. And if there's anyone here today who's never had those coals touch his lips in forgiveness and open access to you, Lord, we pray that they might come in repentance to you, Lord Jesus, and receive that salvation today so that they won't have to face you as judge in a future day. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.